Hey there, and welcome to the Pseudo Show, brought to you by the Destination Linux Network. On this episode, we'll share our very first live Ask Me Anything event. We had folks from all over join us via video conference to ask us questions about tech and careers. All that and more on this episode of the Pseudo Show. Welcome to the Pseudo Show, your home for all things enterprise open source. I'm your host, Eric the IT Guy, and Brandon will be joining me in just a moment. Last week, we hosted our first ever live AMA, Ask Me Anything episode, and it was a great chance to sit down live with all of you and discuss your questions and thoughts. Today, we wanted to share the highlights of that two-hour event with you. Couldn't make it? Wasn't sure what to expect? Not to worry. Brandon and I plan on hosting a live episode about once every quarter, so next time you can jump in, hang out with us, and even become part of the content. Before we dive into the AMA, though, I have to show some love to our sponsor, Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync sensitive data. You can go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to check out this amazing service. Every day, websites and apps are under attack by bots and nefarious individuals trying to gain access to personal information, financial records, and even social media. That is why security experts recommend a unique, randomly generated password for every account to which you have access. For many people, like myself, that could be a couple hundred accounts. There's no way to remember that many unique strings. That is why the Destination Linux Network turns to a password manager we can trust. With Bitwarden, you can create these randomly generated passwords, tag and sort them, and ensure they are different from every site you visit. The best part is Bitwarden will manage all of this for you so you don't have to. If you want to make the smart move like many of our awesome community already have, then check out bitwarden.com slash DLN and get started for free. If you're like me, though, you'll want to show your appreciation by signing up for the Premium Edition, especially when the Premium Edition starts at only $10 a year. That's right, $10 per year. So thank you to Bitwarden for sponsoring the Pseudo Show and the entire Destination Linux network. Now, without further ado, here's our very first Ask Me Anything episode. See you all on the other side. All right, guys. So thank you everyone for joining. I really appreciate it. So, you know, we can hit with all the folks on uh, online first and we get into the written AMA. Um, yeah, I'm good with that. Although we did we did start a bit of a conversation about uh, monitor setups and um, mine mine's a very simple setup. I have dual 22-inch monitors that sit on uh, monitor arms on my desk. Although Brandon's setup is much more interesting and I think I might steal it. I have two ultra wides. One is um, the Lenovo ThinkVision P44W. And this, uh, it's essentially the equivalent of two 1080p 24-inch monitors side by side. And then above it, I have a Dell 34-inch ultra-wide, which is basically the equivalent of two 19-inch monitors side by side. And that one essentially is my email (laughs) and chat and then below on the P44 is the uh, where I get all my real work done. When uh, when my main device was was a laptop, I, I'd have it hooked into a dock, but I'd have that monitor open, so it'd be a third third monitor underneath my two uh, floating 22s, mm-hmm. and I actually use that as as a communications uh, screen only. It was email, it was chats, and then that way I could I could see what was going on without interfering with the uh, kind of my main workflow across the front. Should also mention this one. So I do have, I keep the laptop in clamshell mode on the dock. 
I have an X1 6th gen with the mechanical dock, and I do have another display. It's a 14-inch uh, that I do bring in occasionally when I need a little more real estate. Just typically, you know, stays in that mode. I don't have uh, other displays for like vertical. Like occasionally, I wouldn't mind having a vertical display, especially if I'm looking at hundreds of lines of code. Yeah, that was that was actually one of uh, one of the follow up questions was was vertical monitors, and I've never I've never used one. Uh, I could see a time when I was doing sysadmin work on a daily basis where that that could have come in handy. But uh, see, that was submitted by Toad Rock's boat. Uh, he sent that in ahead of time on our discourse channel. So next question uh, just popped up uh, via Twitter. Actually, Brandon, you want to give folks a, a quick update on on where we're looking timeline wise for that Mistio video? Oh boy. <laughs> I know I threw you under the bus. I couldn't help it. I've been so busy. Uh, that's coming. I, I have not had time to edit it. It's done. I just haven't edited the video. It's coming. Yeah, between that power outage, getting ready for today and uh, and as well. Uh, yeah, I've been you know, regular work things. It's yeah, been a little crazy for both of us the last couple of weeks. Yeah, it's been it's been insane. We do have quite a few pre-submitted questions, but I want to I want to give preference to uh, to the folks in the room. So if anybody wants to wants to unmute, ask a question. Let's uh, let's dive into this. I'm a production IT guy running his own production company. I've been helping with funeral homes and different other nonprofits. We've been trying to do webcasting and they've been thinking Zoom, but every time I have to use their equipment and every time since I'm running this company as open source, should I just bite the gun and update all my equipment on the camera side and get something that would work with my setup? Uh, I haven't done a lot with web conferencing these days. I'm more on the back end, but the way I've seen this get handled in larger organizations, like in meeting rooms, is essentially building out using the certified hardware from that Zoom certifies or Microsoft Teams or BlueJeans, whoever it is, that seems to have the best results. The hardware itself is not exactly affordable, but it's uh, it's the path of least resistance. Now, you know, that being said, you know I've been working from home forever and uh, coming up with the best ways of being able to handle like those you know, video conferencing. Like I have another cameras are certified or not maybe not necessarily certified but like I have a lot a thousand dollar Logitech webcam that I've put in my uh, in my living room that's next next to my office so when I need to do like a big presentation where I want people to see my uh, hand gestures and and things like that I move into that into that space and so something you might think about doing is I know OBS has plugins where you can use your own monitor or a, a video capture device that's plugged into your into your computer and from there you can actually redirect the output into into an application like Zoom or something. It's something I've been considering doing for my own work-based presentations because it'd be nice to have kind of a picture-in-picture view with where I control what the picture looks like because between Google Meet and Zoom and Ring Central and all these other tools that are out there, Blue Jeans, what's the other one, Big Blue Button or something, uh, between all of those different platforms, your experience is different. Something I'm considering doing is redirecting my video output from my Logitech webcam through OBS. That way I can do the overlays the way I want them to look. So if I'm giving a presentation, I don't have to worry about how that's coming across. 
I can I can just run it through OBS. I can have my scenes pre-created, and then I can use that as the either the source for the stream or for the video recording. So OBS, uh, I'd have to look up what the plugin's called. I can't think of it off the top of my head, but that would be a good option. Uh, what uh, video capture cards works with Linux? I've been using Elgato for the last three months, and there it's not working with my Linux setup. I think this would be a good opportunity to plug someone who could answer these questions in his sleep. And I think that's almost literal. But on, on Tuesday nights, if you're if you if you haven't heard on Tuesday nights, there is the Ask Noah show and it's hosted by Noah Chalaya. It's on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Uh, you can call in, ask him questions. And this this is right up Noah's alley. Yeah, Noah knows the video video capture stuff. Probably he's probably the best I know in that space. Okay. Yep. And I know he'd he'd be more than happy to mm-hmm. to take your questions and, and could answer that a whole lot easier than Brandon or I could. Here's one Brandon and I definitely wanted to make sure that we we covered. Uh, we were asked a few times, how do you transition from either an entry level position like help desk? Uh, to the next level up, whether that's systems administrator, security engineer. So, Brandon, if you want to take the first swing at that one. Well, I got lucky <laughs> um, with my first entry-level job. I was brought on to be a Linux desktop subject matter expert because uh, the company I started at 15 years ago was migrating from Windows to Linux desktops. The entire organization we weren't like a small 20, 30, 50 person company. We're talking 5,000 employees plus at the time. Bill, yeah, they were $2 billion in revenue at that time. And they uh, were in the process of migrating off Windows 2000 and Windows XP to, to Linux. Um, so I got, I got lucky there. But f- Going out of that niche of being a Linux desktop expert, or, you know, I moved into other roles, but, you know, breaking out of that was basically, I was a Linux expert, not a help desk guy, right? Um, I got lucky. I, that, that's, uh, that's not everyone, but like right out, like a lot of people I know that right out of college go to, you know, can, usually land like a decent entry-level system administration job instead of a help desk job or a solution architecture, you know, sales engineer job, if that's their, if that's the route they want to go. Kind of breaking out of a desktop space is really tough if you're a Linux, you know, if you want to get into Linux. But my, my suggestion would be getting more into the, in help, you know, in that help desk niche uh, is breaking into the Windows side first because that that's the perception that you know. And once you get into that, you can break into to the other spaces. I know Eric, you have a similar you have a story like that. So I've I've answered this question enough times that I actually gave a talk about it last year itself. It was uh, getting started with open source. So with with my background, I, I've been a technologist as long as I can remember. I've I've always wanted to work in technology. And uh, so when I got started, it was kind of the same thing. I started out as an intern. I started out with uh, with desktop support. That took a few years. That took two or three years. And eventually, I was able to work at a company that I, I was a bit of a hybrid. I was working desktop support, but also some basic server support. And at that time, it was Active Directory and creating users, setting up email boxes in exchange, that kind of thing. 
one of the advantages I had was I tinkered with Linux on the side and uh, was able to... Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, at that point in your career, there's a little bit of fake it until you make it. So I, I kind of had to pretend like I knew a little bit more than I did. So I, I came across a company that, that needed a full-time Linux systems administrator. And at least here in Kansas City in 2011-ish, there was a bit of a, a bit of a shortage for Linux systems administrators. So I, I was able to prove that, yes, I've, I've been a server administrator and I know a bit, I know a little bit about this Linux thing. One of the advantages that all of you in this room have over 2011 version of Eric was you all are doing things to further your career, doing things to further the cause of Linux more than I was. I actually came across the open source community after I spent years as a Linux systems administrator. So the fact that you're here, the fact that you're learning, the fact that you're participating in a community is a huge help. And, and so when I, I actually had this conversation offline with a couple of folks just last week, and one of the things that one of the pieces of advice that I gave was put that on your resume. Include the fact that you're involved in the community, include the fact that you tinker in a home lab, and just show that you have that drive, show that you have a desire to learn. And in a lot of cases, when you're trying to get that entry-level systems administrator role, a lot of times that's enough. Showing the drive. That's what landed my, my first job. And to be honest, a, a lot of managers, a lot of team leads would rather you come in with good, with a good drive, with, good, with a desire to learn, and not know as much. Because then they don't have to unteach quote bad habits. They don't have to, they don't have to retrain you to do certain things the way that that company does them. But you you come in with a desire to learn and a good foundation, and they can build on that a whole lot easier than retraining someone who's more senior. My my second job was actually how I landed that was I it actually needed a ton of MySQL experience, and I had zero, none. But I had tons of Linux experience, and. I actually was told I got hired because I was honest of the fact that I didn't know anything about MySQL and the guy I was competing against for that job just came up and lied and obviously had no idea oh. of what what my my you know how to even write a SQL query and so it was like I'd rather teach you than what you need to know than and the fact that you said I don't know was impressive in the interview I mean like no it's okay to say I don't know. It really is. It's better to say I don't know than than fake it and then bomb the job interview. You you'll be thrown out faster than uh than you were let in. It's a fine line, but there's a difference between kind of faking it until you make it making mm -hmm. it and and just straight up lying. Yep. <laughs> I'm just looking at kind of it of a follow-up. One of the questions uh we got on discourse uh was if I could go for a Linux certification, where would I start? What cert would I begin with? Does certification matter at all? From a Linux certification perspective, I still think the Red Hat certifications hold water still. They are practical exams. They're not multiple choice exams like other certifications. If you can't do the work, you're not going to pass the test. I'm on my way to my RHCA, which is the Red Hat Certified Architect which is the highest you can go. Uh, there are multiple layers on top. You can get, I think it's now RHCA level 20. Those those are probably less important for the entry at an entry level. The RHCSA is awesome. And the new RHCE 
you know, you're basically certifying that you're an automate that that you know how to do automation because it's not so much around rel as it is around ansible now outside of that there's still the there's the linux foundation ones and also susa's certifications susa's certifications i i had a, a susa certified linux administrator at one point it was a lot like the rel certifications so those are very, i think very valid if, especially if you're going into a shop that is a susa shop I mean, we really don't have to justify this, but I, I feel like it's worth noting that, you know, we're not we're not pitching Red Hat certifications because we work for Red Hat. I mean, myself, I I came to to work at Red Hat because of the experience that I had as a customer of the company over over my career. One of the reasons why kind of the next step of, of my personal journey was once I got my first server administrator role, I was a hybrid between Windows and Linux. I ended up making a decision a few a few years into into that stage of my career to go strictly Linux. And I literally went through a, a phase where I had a Microsoft certified server administrator book or whatever their tests were called back then. And then in the other hand, I had the, the RHCSA study guide. And I kind of compared the two. What do I want to do with my career? And the fact that Red Hat, for as long as I've known, Red Hat has offered practical exams. And, and it's kind of back to that hiring manager's perspective of, do I want somebody who's book smart? Do I want somebody who can re regurgitate all these definitions to me? Or do, or do I trust someone who's actually gone in under testing conditions and created a user, expanded a, a disk, actually done the work. Because I've, I've met people with three or four certifications, and you ask them to go and, and fix an issue on a server, and they go, uh... Mm -hmm. But when, when you go with someone with a practical uh, certification, like the RHCSA, you, you know a little bit better of what you're getting. Yeah. That's not to say that having book knowledge isn't critical, um, especially, I mean, think about Kubernetes. There's how many different types of Kubernetes certifications these days? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but there's also a huge demand and a huge shortage for people who understand how Kubernetes works. So having a Kubernetes type certification would still be valid. Yeah, indeed. There's another question in here that you know, Computer Kid is is here on, on the on the Zoom meeting. Wanted to call his question specifically because I started in technology about his age. I was actually twelve, you know, and he says he's almost fourteen. And building the skills that you know at home on on just spare desktop machine that, that's fantastic. How to get hired? You know, I don't know if the question is like how to get hired, but like the you know, when I was younger it was easier because we had all these tiny ISPs, right? We had like just here in my hometown, we had like twenty ISPs that you could get <laughs> dial-up service from. You, if you had an interest in computers when, when I was that age, I just went in and just like, hey, what can I do to help? And they're like, yeah, we'll give you like five bucks an hour to. Uh, run cable or stuff like that, right? Back then, it was a little, I think, a little easier to break in as a teenager. And then, uh, you know, where to spend all the time now, though? So as you do get your hand, you know, get your hands dirty. So when you do go in and go for a job, when you know, when you're going into college and get a tech job, like right now, it's yeah, right now it's Kubernetes and automation languages, whether that's Ansible. I mean, of course, I'm going to plug Ansible. <laughs> If you want a non-Red Hat solution, uh, I'm a big fan of SaltStack as well. Yeah, I was going to mention Salt there. And then uh, <laughs> Chef. Actually, I am a big fan of Chef. I think Chef is awesome. Um, my most Chef has been doing some amazing things lately. And Container 
technology is not going away anytime soon and neither is virtualization. You know, like mm-hmm. if you have an opportunity to really tinker with proprietary or, or open source virtualization technology, do it. If you want to gain some practical experience while you're while you're finishing up school, do something like and find a project who needs who needs help in the in the space that you're wanting to work in. Get some real experience, and then that is something huge you can put on a resume. and And a hiring manager is going to look at that and go, "Wow, you you have the education, but you've been doing this for you know X number of years already. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I I want someone like you on my team." In the chat, Corey asks, uh, "Would CentOS be okay to to use to learn the Red Hat exam?" So, my I've I've got a twofold answer for you. The first is yes, sort of. Pretty much anything on the RHCSA should should be uh, okay to do on CentOS. But I do have a solution that's one step better. And if you go out to RedHat.com and find a uh, or 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 better yet, just search for Red Hat Developer License. You can actually get copies of CentOS, of Ansible Tower, Satellite. You mean RHEL. Um, you can get a certain number of licenses for, yeah. um, well, and, and RHEL, obviously. that you So you can install the actual ISOs, get an actual subscription, and work on, on RHEL proper. Hey, it's free. And you just, it, you need a, yeah, you need a Red Hat account. But other than that, it's, uh, it's free for development and, learning purposes i could go if you like so i want to make software freedom a full-time job i'm passionate about software engineering and system administration but i don't have certifications i was wondering in your opinions what are the best companies for doing that the most starting up and what is the the best uh, approach to that so when you when you say software freedom is a full-time job, are, are you saying you want to work in open source or are you more interested on, say, the legal side? More so in development. I respect that, you know, there's only so far making everything free, making everything open source can get you in terms of allowing you to eat, uh, let's say. I'm thinking <laughs> that path is really going to be, you're going to have your job, which hopefully, preferably dream world is going to be something where you're producing software, everybody gets to use, maybe there's an enterprise version, but it follows the principles of software freedom. And then you have your uh, outside of work time, and then you can work on completely free projects. So I figure that path is going to look like working for a company like Ubuntu or GitLab or Red Hat. I know the players generally speaking in in the FOSS world but i don't know quite you know where is the best places to go for seeking a, a career a, a full-time job in that respect i've always suggested building your portfolio i think that's really important like whether if you have a github or gitlab like through contributions like it doesn't it's not a guarantee and I actually think it's not as uh, important as it used. Uh, it's beca- actually it's becoming more important more recently. I've I've seen more people get hired simply because of their GitHub profile. Like they have tons of projects that they've uh, done pull requests against or merge requests in Git in GitLab, and it's ac- they're actually participating in a specific community. But participating in a community like that is sponsored by a large entity, whether that be a Red Hat, Canonical, or SUSE, is not, a, you know, sadly, it's still not a guarantee, but it does get you visibility and increases your chances of landing a development position at an open source focused organization. Do you have any recommended certifications or avenues to pursue? 
in that respect, education and so on? Um, from a development standpoint, it may not necessarily be a certification, but the language of the cloud has been trending towards Go. Kubernetes is written in Go. The vast majority of the surrounding ecosystem is written in Go. But a few years ago, it was Python. Ansible was written in Python. And before that, a lot of tools were written in Ruby. So it keep, it keeps changing and evolving. So it's there's not one technology to really land on. Tomorrow, it could be Rust or it could be C for web. So... <laughs> oh gosh. We have a kind of a follow-up question. Do we have a good example of a GitHub profile? Uh there it, I do have one. It's not mine. Uh mine is terrible to be perfectly <laughs> frank. The I'll we'll put uh I'll put a link to one in the show notes. I like this one because it really just shows, okay, this is how many stars I have on my projects. These are the amount of commits. And uh, I think you can view the, the code for his readme so you can get an idea. And like most use languages. So it tells you, it tells a prospective employer that goes and looks at your profile, what languages you actually write in. So uh, that that's how we built his profile. Okay, so here's... Here's a couple of questions that I know Brandon has been itching to cover, so I'll go ahead and read this off for you. Uh, but G over in Discourse actually posted uh, a question about where do you purchase servers and hardware for your home lab? Yeah, so I don't buy like Dell Supermicro Direct for my stuff. All I care about right away is doesn't have IPMI. And these days, can I just use an AMD with an AM4 socket? I'm re actually rebuilding my lab right now. And uh, ASRock actually makes a board that has IPMI. And even better, it has an AM4 socket. So I can use any Ryzen CPU I want. <laughs> and it has PCI4. So I can do some fun things with that, like with whether if that's graphics or just putting in like a 25 gig networking. That's part of the plan anyway. But I kind of build my own because uh, even with, buying secondhand like Dell or Supermicro hardware, it's uh, still expensive. Not not expensive as in like the initial cost, it's expensive to run. I don't want to run an enterprise class server in my in my lab just simply because of the power and cooling uh, requirements. Like if I can get away with doing passive cooling, I do it because I don't want I, I don't want the noise, but right now everything is active cooled. So I just hop on Newegg and find boards that support that stuff. And I just keep watching that. I mean, Newegg and Amazon um, and Tiger Direct is really where I get all my stuff. And it's all all pretty much just custom builds. I don't buy anything um, off the shelf. So in the past, I've, I've used a company called ServerMonkey. ServerMonkey, uh, the server store out of Texas um, in the United States, they're the ones that go in when, when companies that do buy direct from, from Dell or, or HP, when all of those go off lease and they're you know, three or four years old, companies like ServerMonkey are the ones that buy, buy up that hardware and refurb and resell. Um, so I've I've bought a few Dell servers off of off a of server server monkey mostly because the name's hilarious. But uh, I I had a good experience with server monkey. If if you want like production quality hardware that is a few years old in good shape but is similar to what you'd see in in the data center itself. So Dr posted in the chat that his home server is basically an old workstation i7 
uh, 32 gigs of RAM. That literally was was how I started my home lab. I I built a desktop, and so I just bought double of everything, with the exception of the of the graphics card. And uh, so one was was a headless server that I installed CentOS six on, and the other ended up becoming my uh, my 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 workstation. It was a custom build, and that server worked great for me for years. Production stuff ran in containers on the on the host OS, and then anything I was playing with ran in VMs. So I mean, it's it's a great way, and you spend less than a thousand dollars, and and you've got a really decent server to to run, um, like like DR suggested, Plex and Nextcloud and and Minecraft and things like that. Um, so that's a, that's a perfect place to start. Corey posted in chat uh, if he wanted to make a production studio at home, uh, if we'd suggest egg cartons. That's a really, really easy, cheap solution. Not as cheap, but fairly decent is like what I've got here. I've got foam panels that I bought off of Amazon, and I just mounted those to the wall uh, using command strips. So the the question that we actually got in, in chat a day or so ago uh, was how well does Linux perform on, on a tablet? GNOME is shockingly running great. Sometimes it can be a hog CPU-wise, mostly, not necessarily memory-wise. But yeah, I've been using them to great success. The ThinkPads, I kind of use them as hard phones, essentially, because I run basically all my meetings off of those tablets, especially the the ThinkPad 10. I wish the on-screen keyboard was a little better. But I do have external keyboards for them. So it, actually on the Pine phone, I'm running uh, Mobian, which is a Debian-based distribution, which is using uh, Fosh. And what I'm really liking about it is actually the up-to-date keyboard. And if that can get into upstream GNOME, that would be fantastic because the keyboard, at least on Mobian, is fantastic. Okay, so here here's a couple of uh, here's a couple more uh, workflow type questions. When uh, when you're using Git, we talked about GitHub and, and GitLab a little bit. So when you're using Git, do you prefer CLI or the GUI? Oh, okay. So that depends. So my preferred editor is Visual Studio Code. In Visual Studio Code, I'll use it the built-in Git capability in the UI. It's there. I'll just use it. Just makes it easier. But I do still do a lot of stuff like on the command line. I actually do prefer Git on the command line. Yeah, and I kind of go back and forth on that one myself. When when I was at GitLab, I pretty much exclusively used Git through the GitLab uh, UI. Uh, through the web interface, just because all of my work was there, so it was easy just to make code changes on the in the online editor and and submitting that way. When when I'm writing a bunch of Ansible playbooks, I'm usually using VS Code uh, because I can have my editor, I can have uh, a command line down at the bottom. Uh, so a lot of times I'll just do my Git commits there. Uh, but if I'm if I'm server side, if I'm working on on a headless system, then you know I'd probably default to to the CLI just because it's quick and convenient. The the follow up to that question was, do you have one that you prefer or recommend? Use what works for you. But my my recommendation would be, if you're new to Git, use the command line so you can learn the process, see what the different commands are, see how how it interacts, how the how your Git repo takes takes on information and and displays information. Because then when you go to a GUI, a lot of that is abstracted behind the UI. If something were to go wrong and you've never used the command line, it's going to be a lot harder to troubleshoot than if you realize, oh, it just broke down here. Maybe it's a bug in in the Git plugin or something of of VS Code. So you knew that, oh, hey, it broke at this step. So I can just go to the command line, run these two commands, and I'm back up and running. I'll just read this off from Vegas Josh and the 
made from our matrix room. I know from the show that you love all things open source for the enterprise, but what Linux and FOSS stuff do you geek out personally in everyday <laughs> life? Is there any tech software, tech or software that you're really into that doesn't necessarily tie to enterprise? Home Assistant is probably what I've been most interested in at home, tinkering with that, like in terms of, like I, I've, uh, you know, I'm using that as essentially a barrier between all the, all my devices in my house uh, that it supports that I, I don't communicate to the internet. I, I'm very, very adamant. I don't want a light switch to be on the public internet. So I have Home Assistant is essentially acting as that barrier. And then I have Home Assistant talking to things like HomeKit, like App, Apple HomeKit, so I can do all the stuff on my iPhone. So Toad, who's still with us, actually asked in Discord, so Brandon, do you have a bus factor plan for your personal digital assets? So so does does your wife have access to your to your password vault? Does she know what to do with uh does she know what to do with, with all those servers should you get hit by the proverbial bus? What's that plan look like for you? Uh, well, if, if that does happen, what will immediately happen is my wife will, after a couple of weeks of grieving, will probably just rip out all my servers and throw <laughs> them in the trash can because she'll be like, I don't know what the heck this is doing and make it go away. Uh, but from a password perspective, all seriousness, we use Bitwarden for password management with the family plan. If Anything would have happened to me or her, uh, we have access to each other's passwords. All of them. We have like, there's like, if uh, she needs to get into my email, she can get into my email. I have now three email accounts that get used, but like the one that actually matters, she has access to that. And well, she has access to the other two as well, but the one so she can get into our bank accounts, reset any passwords if needed or whatever. Uh, she has complete access to everything. And in terms of like documents and things like that, I have, I have a setup where all my data is backed up. I, t I take the time to do this about once a month and, uh, all the data that is relevant for our house, for anything, any, you know, any, any life documents. I have a hard disk that I keep uh, in a safety deposit box. And if uh, anything were to happen to me and she, for whatever reason, can't get access to the data through the cloud services that we're using, all that data is in a safety deposit box on a hard drive. Uh, and it's not, you know, it's not a lot of data, but it, it but I, I make sure that it's done regularly. And about 10 bucks in, in our discourse asked, how would you migrate a business or school to open source? And I think that's a, that's a great question. On the back, back end services, quite frankly, are probably the easiest to migrate to open source software. Like, uh, if you're, if you're starting from scratch, obviously just do it, but like migrating like enterprise resource management platforms, ERP, uh, moving that to an open source platform is easy. CRM, moving that, moving the data is hard. But implementing them is easy and getting people to adopt them is not a forklift because it's all web-based regardless of platform. Now, moving your end users to open source, that's where things get really hard. Everyone's using Microsoft Office or Google Docs on, on Windows or on Mac. But the way we did we did this, my first job 15 years ago was on every Windows machine we pushed out. At the time, it was OpenOffice 1.0. 
So thankfully, that's not much of a problem. I mean, LibreOffice 7 has awesome support for uh, Microsoft Office formats. Today, it's a lot easier to move off of Microsoft Office to LibreOffice. There's more than one way to approach it, but moving moving a moving an organization, small business, medium business, a school to open source is not for the faint of heart, especially if you're looking at end user computing. And I'm, my answer would be very similar. Do the backend stuff that, that your end users aren't going to see and then start switching over your, your desktop applications. Because I mean, desktop Linux has come so far in the past three or four years that when you've factor in how easy it is to use GNOME or how how much you can customize either GNOME or Plasma to, to look like Windows or to behave like Windows. Um, if someone's already used to using LibreOffice and Firefox and, and you change their desktop, the way it looks or change the way that the, the quote start menu behaves, it's going to be a whole lot easier because you, you don't want to start a riot with your end users by switching everything overnight. Mm-hmm. Our first live AMA was an amazing success. We had plenty of questions and got to hear some of your amazing stories. Live, we discussed Brandon's tablet addiction and deep love of coffee. We talked about how embarrassing it was for me to get hired by Red Hat, only to find that my RHCSA was actually expired. Then, in the post-show, Brandon teaches an impromptu lesson on network-based storage. In fact, our two-hour event went for almost three. If you want to catch all the jokes, outtakes, extra questions, and more of our live AMA event, head on over to the Destination Linux Network YouTube channel for the full, uncut version. And as always, if you'd like to catch more of our content, you can find it over at sudo.show and on social media at sudoshowpodcast. You can catch more awesome content over at our network partners, destinationlinux.network. You can follow me at ITGuyEric or on ITGuyEric.com. And you can catch my buddy Brandon on social media at dbrandonjohnson or on his website at open-tech.net. Remember, the Pseudo Show is your place for all things enterprise open source. Until next time.